One of the troubling signs of the American church is the sheer number of people that are leaving it today. It's a large and growing class. We call them church refugees. Uh, we call them de-churched or just the duns because they are officially done with church. We are not talking about people that just drifted off and started attending less often until they attended not at all. We're talking about people who made a formal, intentional decision to no longer stay inside of an established church. They did this because they believe that their spiritual lives are better off outside of organized religion. Or as one of them said, I guess the church just sort of churched the church right out of me. Said another one who left formally, uh, I maintained my, uh, my connection to Christianity, but I have broken my connection with other Christians. What we know from studying them over the last 30 years is that they leave for various reasons. But there are two dominant reasons that rise above the others, or if you will, there are two categories that all other reasons fall into. One is that the church has failed to meet their expectations. Instead of being a place of rest in a place or a sanctuary, it has become a place of tension and strife and controversy. And in some cases, it's become boring. And so they're bored with the worship and bored with the sermons and bored with about everything that the church is into. And it's failed their expectations. The other category is that their expectations have failed to grasp the purpose of the church in the first place. When they came, they came looking for things that churches should have, but these are not the purpose of the church. They came looking for belonging, camaraderie, commitment, honesty, and forgiveness, and growth. But when they came, they came to take something from the community rather than to give something to it. So it might be worth, I thought, going back and trying to look at what Jesus and Paul envisioned when they built the church. Some years ago, or actually months ago, it was just last year, I think it was, I, uh, I introduced you to two communities. One of these I call a bounded community, and the other one I called a centered community. Did I get that in the middle this time? Because some of you are worried about that. Is that close enough? I'll hear about it if I did not. The bounded community, we said, is determined by members' likeness to each other. They all went through the same rite of passage. They were all born again. They all received baptism and then first communion. They all made a profession of faith. 
They've all spoken in tongues, whatever it is. But what makes them a community is the fact that they've come into it through the same rite of passage, and for the most part, they believe the same things. The talking points, the agenda is all the same. The vision, the ideas, there's similarity. And so everyone gets along, sort of. A centered community is determined by the members' similarity not to each other, but to the center. Now, some of them are close and some are far away. But they're all inside the circle because they have a relationship with the center. So what this means is, in a bounded community, the community is more or less homogeneous. It's the same because people came into it in the same way and for the same thing. But in a centered community, the people are more diverse because they're gathered according to their similarity to the center, not according to their similarity to each other. So they can be very diverse because they have only one thing in common. They have a relationship with and they have a participation in the center. That's what holds them together. You tracking? Now, most communities are both centered and bounded. Churches are. When we worship, it is Christ who we worship, the person. We don't make this up every week. There is one figure who rises above all other personalities, and it's Jesus Christ. In a Christian church, Jesus is the most compelling and popular personality in the room. It is not the preacher, it is not the worship team, and it is not one another. It is Jesus Christ. And that's why the people of God gather. It is for and with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, when we gather, we find ourselves defaulting into certain ways of apprehending Christ. When we speak of Christ, we speak of him in ways very similar to one another. And over the course of time, what began as a centered community becomes both centered and bounded. We have regulations that govern membership, communion, baptism, and these are all like passage points. Now, why am I drawing this out? Because some churches shift from being a centered community to being a bounded community without even knowing it. We come together assuming that the center is Jesus Christ. Then we talk about everything else. 
And it's only a matter of time before you assume it, but don't talk about it, to the time you stop assuming it. And other personalities and centers start to evolve. And when this happens, we start to see little circles inside the body that are more interested in each other than they are interested in the center. Let me tell you some things that seem like the center, but they are not the center. One is an experience of Christ. Have you been born again? Have you been sanctified? Did you get the second blessing? Did you make a profession of faith? We spend so much time talking about how we got in that we forget to talk about the one who is the center. Second, our social agendas. Are we pro-life or pro-choice? Is it black lives matter or all lives matter? Is it open borders or closed borders? Is it gay rights or traditional families? What happens sometimes is we come into the church because of the center and then we start forming colonies or tribes or movements inside of the church that are not focused on the center, they're focused on a social agenda. And it might be worth stating again that Christ is still the center of the church. This is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 1, if you were waiting for me to get to Ephesians. This is why Paul says, praise be to the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in love, he predestined us through him. In him, we have forgiveness and the redemption of sins. And God will one day gather up all things together in Christ, not around some agenda, not around some experience, around the personality of Jesus Christ. It might be worth saying one more time that in that famous final scene in Revelation chapter 4, it is all of the nations that are on their faces. It is still the Son of God who is on the throne. Sorry, I'll dial it down. But you can understand a person in my position who hears from so many conflicting interests that are rising in the church. Gosh, can I just say, I am done talking about social issues with people who never quote Christ. I am tired of talking to Christians who are full of convictions and they can't remember a word he said. 
People who believe that if Jesus appeared in the flesh today, he would not say anything that would offend them. He is an equal opportunity offender. He is shockingly different from all humanity. Too different. And more than anything, I want the church to get back to its center. Vision, mission, core values. These are some things that we'll start to polarize around. We'll attract people into our body because we all have the same vision for taking over Grant County or whatever it is. And before long, we become a nonprofit organization. It is Christ the center, not something else. And why do I keep belaboring this point? Because when something else becomes the agenda, the body of Christ disintegrates into colonies or tribes. And I fear right now that this is where we are. Now, what some of you heard, I'll back off. Some of you have the email half written. Emily's gone. Who do you write? <laughs> now, what some of you heard last week when we were talking about me to we uh, is uh, you heard um, a shift uh, from uh, individualism to collectivism. Individualism is the individual determines what is best for them, and collectivism is that the group determines what is best for the individual. Morals, the ethics, the standards, the behavior, sometimes in some cultures, who you marry. Comes from the group, doesn't come from the individual. And some of you, uh, rightly so, you resisted that. We have people in our church that were raised in America, and some were raised uh, in the Latino countries, or some in Asian countries, and those are more... Um, uh, collective cultures. And so you know, don't you, that collectivism has as many flaws as communalism. But what I was trying to say, though poorly, a couple weeks ago, was that the shift from me to we is not a shift from an individual to a community. It is an emphasis on the community's grasp of Jesus over the individual's grasp of Jesus. So the road from me to we goes through Jesus. What the community is trying to convey to the individual is not its cultural heritage, its rituals, its history and traditions. What it's trying to convey is the ways in which that community have grasped the ways of Christ. It is Christ that we're trying to convey to the individual. It is Christ that we're trying to protect ourselves from the encroachment of other views. It is not just our cultural heritage. 
If we're trying to export our cultural heritage to other people, they're going to resist us because they should. Theirs are as good as ours. But if we have found ways of living in Christ as a body that are peculiar to this community, by all means, let's convey those to the individuals. You still there? Now, Paul gives us the agenda of this community. Your Bibles are open. In chapter 1, verse 15, he prays to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might come to know him. He's not just praying that we would have wisdom and revelation. That's a means to an end. He's praying that we would come to know him. Then once we start to know him, verse 18, the eyes of our heart will slowly be enlightened. One thinks of uh, Isaiah's criticism of his contemporaries in Isaiah 6, 9, where uh, he says, having eyes, they cannot see. They can look right at something and they can't see it. One thinks of the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 where they were kept from recognizing him even though he walked right next to them. So apparently you can look right at something and not recognize it. Is it possible then to recognize what you haven't seen? Are there other ways of recognizing that is what Paul is after here. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened up so that you would begin to recognize things you couldn't see until you looked for them. This week I had a conversation with Jackie and um, I said, you know, one of the hardest things about this for us is that you can pray for something and when you don't get what you prayed for, you tend to think that God has not answered your prayers. But all the while, God is giving you other things. And you cannot recognize those things because you're so fixed on the thing you prayed for. So while it is true that God has not given us what we asked for, he has given us other things that we have not asked for. And they're just as valuable more so. She said, thank you for saying that. But I couldn't have said it a while ago. 
because I didn't see it. I didn't know what I was looking for. But when I start to see the ways that God shows up and does things that only God can do, why, it's remarkable. It's like my eyes are being opened so I can see things that I wasn't looking for before. Now, when my eyes are open, says Paul, I'll see two things. I'll see the hope to which I was called. And hope is not only the promise of what I'm becoming. Hope is the meaning in what I'm doing. It is in hope that I believe these trials are temporary and are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. That's not wishful thinking. That's hope. And it is in hope that I find meaning in my work even when my work feels demeaning because it puts me in the company of people. And as C.S. Lewis reminds us, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mortal in your life. And so there is meaning in the thing I am doing. And Paul is praying that when we go to work tomorrow, our eyes will catch it. And finally, he prays for power. He prays for knowledge. He prays for hope. And he prays for power. And the power of Jesus is different from the power of the world. It is small, slow, hidden, and weak. And yet, it subverts entire kingdoms. Now watch. Paul is saying, when you come into the body of Christ, you are coming to a person, not to a cause. We must stay focused on the person. And the agenda of the person is that we would know God better. That we would grow in the hope of our salvation. We would begin to see things that are true, but we've never seen them before. And that together, as a body of Christ, we would exercise the power of God to change situations collectively. And the beauty of this is all of this comes not only in the community, it comes through the community. Our hope and our inheritance comes in the saints. Don't just come straight from God to you. It comes from Christ through someone else to you. All right, where am I going with this? You've been wondering that now for a long time, haven't you? Last piece. Paul is saying that when you came to Jesus Christ, you came to us. You may not know that. 
You may still be hooked on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your private devotions in your closet of prayer. But there is more wisdom and knowledge collectively in the body than you could ever get alone. And you can't get it straight from Jesus into your ear through your devotions. You'll have to get in the community because God uses others to speak to you. But the communities that you are in are not necessarily spiritual communities. Just because you formed a small group doesn't make it the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ by its agenda, not by how regular it gathers. If you get together, but your discussion is not about knowing him better, growing in the hope, and exercising the power, go golfing. That's a nonprofit organization. It's marvelous. It has social consequences. But it is not a spiritual community. The community is established by its agenda. It's not established by its articles of incorporation and tax ID number. And it's not established because some denomination said that's a church. No denomination has that power. It's established when its agenda becomes to know him better and the hope of our calling and the power that is at work within us. Your commitment to this community will take place in probably these ways. There is a universal that's the big C, church. There's a local. That's college church. And there's a communal. That's your small group. What I see in the church is a lot of people who are devoted to the church. They're just not devoted to a church. The, the, the problem is that every single epistle in the New Testament, bar none, was written to a local congregation with real people, real names who had weird idiosyncrasies and annoying habits. So any idea about saying that we belong to the church, just not my church, is a little like saying you believe in marriage, just not yours. Dude, you have no way to express your belief in marriage except through yours. What you believe in is an idea, not a body. So ultimately, any grand vision for the church has to begin in the local church. Come on now. 
Then there are some who say, this I believe in, but I don't need this. And so church for y'all becomes like a camp meeting, like Fairmount. It's the way I go to Fairmount. One time a year, sitting back, and I wonder, what do they got for me? And I hope they don't ask me to pray. That's how some of y'all attend church. It's here to see what we got so you can go. You now realize that your commitment begins at a much smaller level. You may love the universal church and be loyal to the local church, but down here is where you do life. So this is high individualism, low commitment, low individualism, high commitment. Come on up and we'll move into the questions. wherever you are in your walk with Jesus Christ. Would you ask yourself this morning, who do I belong to? Not what, who? If you had a crisis, who would you call? And you could say, Meet me in Warsaw in two hours at 11 o'clock at night. And they would be there. Are they in this room? I wish they were. More than that, who would you drive to Warsaw to meet? How intense is your commitment to a small group of people who share the same passion, knowing him better, growing in the hope of your calling and living in a collective power from God? We've put questions before you each week. We'll do it again this week. These questions are not designed to be asked alone or from one person to the other. You can do that, I suppose, but they will lose their power. It's better, I think, if you get into a small circle and discuss them. First is, do you know anyone who's left church? Why did they leave and what didn't they find? But second, if, if your group was a centered community, what are two things at least you'd notice about it and how true are those of your small group? And third, what is a practical step that you could take maybe today, tonight, um, to get as a group even better at knowing God? Jesus, well, there it is. I think I've said what I, what we wanted them to hear.
But what they interpret now is up to you. If all you do is take just part of this and you go to work on the body of Christ, not as a collection of individuals, but as one living soul, oh, we would praise you and thank you. We need it. Settle upon us, we pray now in Jesus' name.